into a flowing font of truth and good and cash. If you're looking for the loot to toot a flute or cure a rash. If you're down on luck and need a buck, we'll fund you in a flash. If you'd like to write a piece on St. Denise or Delacroix. If you must research the Church of Christ or works of Myrna Loy. Don't be bashful, weave a stashful. Don't be timid, don't be coy. Barring market crashes, floods, or worse inflation. Barring fiscal flops or fierce devaluation. In a world where next to nothing comes for free. That you never thought you'd ever live to see. So divide a shrine to find philanthropy as the to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 6, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Jenna Tessa Fox. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Listeners will note that uh, Peter's joining us by telephone this morning. We ran into a few technical difficulties, but... Uh, that is why his sound is a little bit off from normal. Jenna Tessa Fox is with us. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Jenna, thank you uh, for coming on Sunday morning. Thank you for inviting me. We've had some wild storms this week here in New York. Do you guys get wet? Mm-hmm. Pretty much uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, uh, yeah, got got rained out pretty heavily. They don't, uh, they don't generally rain out Broadway shows, but we were up at Yankee Stadium, and uh, they didn't rain that out either. They just made us wait for six hours. So, were you there on uh, on Wednesday? Wednesday, yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, so was I. I, I, I knew you looked familiar. <laughs> I was wet. You didn't, that's why you didn't recognize me. <laughs> that must be it, yes. I'm supposed to see an outdoor show in Monroe, Connecticut tonight. We'll see if it rains there. So, oh. who knows? Well, I understand it's supposed to, uh, it's supposed to pass away, the, uh, the rain, so hopefully it'll be much better. Um, the three of us got to see a different outdoor show, A Midsummer mm-hmm. Night's Dream at the Delacorte, uh, Shakespeare in the Park, Public Theater, all the other labels that we can apply to that. Uh, so, Jenna, why don't you start us off with Midsummer? Um, I really don't know what to make of a Shakespeare in the Park production that doesn't have protesters outside. Nobody ran on stage and stopped the show. Uh, I I got very confused. I didn't know what I was seeing. Uh, Joking aside, this production is lovely. It is silly and funny. It's everything you want in a summery romantic comedy. It's bright and colorful uh, it's the classic story. They just they tell it straight with a lot of jokes. They make it enjoyable. They don't try to go to the dark places. Even when it could go dark, it doesn't. Uh, Helena's pursuit of Demetrius is played up as comic rather than creepy, which would wor- certainly works. But I've seen other productions that made that much darker, where it seemed like she was assaulting him. I was afraid they would go in that direction for this production, but. Um, Lear de, de, sorry, Lear de Bessonette's direction is sharp and fast and funny. It's just, it really emphasizes 
the ridiculousness and the over-the-topness of this really crazy script. I mean, when you think about it, even in the playbill, it talks about in another story, and yet in another, they keep listing all the different plots that the play includes. And it totally acknowledges how ridiculous it all is. Uh, the cast is fantastic. Christine Nielsen as Puck. Every time I see her on stage, she just amazes me all over again. She can do no wrong. She can just disappears into every role she plays. Very, very funny. Uh, Annalie Ashford goes way over the top as Helena. Sometimes she seems to be in another show entirely, quite frankly, because she's so over the top. But it still works. It's a very comic over-the-top character, so it really fits. Danny Burstein plays Nick Bottom. He's very funny, but he's not... We don't laugh at Nick Bottom. We laugh with him. He is uh, utterly befuddled, but he's aware that things are just going bizarre. And I really liked his take on the character. Uh, We're not meant to laugh at him. We laugh with him. And that works. It's very nice. And I also want to give a shout out to Jeff Hiller as Francis Flute, one of the mechanicals. He really jumped out as a really good comic presence and hope to see a lot more of him. Uh, Richard Poe, Felicia Rashad as Oberon and Titania, respectively. Very, very nice work. They don't do anything really surprising with the roles, but they're funny and very elegant. They seem very regal. Uh, uh, as Theseus, Bavish Patel, Hippolyta Dadre Aziza, Aziza. they play a nice counterpoint to Oberon and Titania as very regal, powerful figures, and they command the stage very nicely. Shalita Grant uh, is a very funny Hermia. Kyle Beltran is a wonderful Lysander. Alex Hernandez, very nice Demetrius. The cast works very well as a unit. They function together very nicely to keep the play moving, keep the energy up, and they do a really a lovely job with that. Uh, and uh, David Rockwell, that was his name, sorry, I'm looking at the, uh, the program. David Rockwell's scenic design, uh, I have to give some cheers. He really does a nice job turning Central Park into the forest surrounding Athens. Uh, creating trees that seem to come out from the park onto the stage that the characters can disappear into. So really deserves praise for nice making really good use of the outdoor space. This is the perfect show to stage outdoors. I've seen quite a few outdoor productions of this just for that very reason. It takes place in a forest. Why not? And really nice work with the lighting, uh, Ty- Tyler Michelow's lighting and uh, David Rockwell's set of bringing the outdoors or emphasizing the nature of the outdoors on the stage. They did really lovely work there. So this is a wonderfully funny production, great for families and it's free. There's no excuse to miss this. It's a lot of fun that I really hope it, uh, it does well and keeps bringing them in. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Well, I wasn't as thrilled um, with uh, Christine Nielsen or Annalie Ashford. Now, uh, Jenna did mention that uh, Annalie was over the top, and um, <clears throat> that was my feeling as well. 
as for Christine Nielsen, I I feel she was doing everything I've seen her do before, and um, I, I, I I'm starting to think that uh, the best she can do uh, in her career is act befuddled, um, and um, there was a lot of that in this production. She's very good at being befuddled, and I imagine that anybody who hasn't seen her be befuddled before will certainly uh, be entranced by her, just as we all were when we first saw her. So. Um, I wasn't um, taken with those two performances particularly. However, I did like Danny Burstein immensely because I thought it was a very honest performance. He was really playing the character and playing a human being. Now, <laughs> I guess I could let Christine Nielsen off the hook because she isn't quite playing a human being, but I can't let Anna Lee Ashford off the hook because she's supposed to be. The two young men I thought were very good. Uh, the rest of the cast I like too. What I really should say here, and I, I hope I don't sound condescending when I say it, it's an excellent show for the park, for people who usually don't go to the theater and um, aren't familiar with Shakespeare, because this is one of the, you should pardon the expression, easiest Shakespeare's to understand. So um, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for families to get acquainted with Shakespeare. Um, maybe even mom and dad haven't uh, been acquainted with Shakespeare terribly well. So uh, I think it serves a good purpose, and uh, the price is right, to say the least. And it is wonderful always to sit out there on a summer night and enjoy what's going on. And <laughs> I guess it is midsummer, so uh, it, it fits the bill there, too. So it, um, this was my literally um, <laughs> 23rd production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, it won't rank in the top uh, echelon of, um, of my viewings. But, uh, again, they're, they're serving their purpose, and I wish it well, and I'm glad it's bringing so much pleasure to so many people. So, uh, Peter, I, uh, in thinking about what you just said, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about Annalie Ashford. Uh, and I sat there all evening just marveling at how much I adored her. And, but I, I guess your, your point is, 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 can be taken true is that she, she was way over the top and it was sort of the Annalie Ashford show. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, I, I, I sort of feel like we, we might have seen this in Bette Midler and Dolly, that she wasn't so much Dolly all the time as Bette Midler playing Dolly, or maybe Kristen Chenoweth and, and you know, maybe Wicked, that we were watching the Kristen Chenoweth show. Um, and certainly we see this with Nathan Lane uh, in the Nathan Lane show. So I, 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 don't, I don't know, but I really enjoyed Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and I really enjoyed Annalie Ashford, and and I, but stepping back from it, I guess I'm thinking that I really enjoyed seeing how funny and endearing Annalie Ashford was, and I, uh, and I might have missed some of the uh, better parts of the story because of the, you know, the over the top nature of of what was going on. Um, well, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. This brings up something else entirely. But um, um, a couple of weeks ago when my play Adam's Gifts was done in Dayton, Ohio, um, there's a line in the play that I say all the time, and that is, I'd much rather you have a good time than agree mm. with me. Yeah. And out came this enormous burst of laughter from Jeff Malenga, uh, one of my readers, and um, somebody who is faithfully listening to the podcast, <laughs> because he has heard me say that so many times. And uh, I recognized the laughter immediately. I mean, he was the only person in the house that laughed, because, of course, it, it's, it's yeah. a fine line. But, I mean, <laughs> the fact remains that only he understood that it's 
something I, I go to all the time. So I'm going to go to it now as well. You know, and I'm very glad that you had a good time, and I'd much rather you have a good time than agree with me. Um, but um, that said, uh, I wish that for everybody in the city who goes to uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream that's Delacourt. Yeah, and I, I was fortunate enough that we had just the perfect evening, and it, the weather was beautiful, and it wasn't yeah, too hot. Yeah, that means a lot. And, it really does. And that, that really, really helps does. the enjoyment of, of a show in the park. And uh, Dan, as you said, Danny Burstein is just a national treasure. Uh, oh, oh, I, I, I thoroughly I, agree. I um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But ironically enough, you know, I, when you talk about uh, it was a beautiful night, the the worst night I ever spent in that theater, uh, when the heat was so oppressive, was ironically enough for the, the Winter's Tale. I mean, so, um, <laughs> oh no! You know, you <laughs> and by the way, speaking of Bette Midler, um, may I also say that I saw Donna Murphy this week do uh, Dolly, oh. and and I have to say that she is giving quite a performance. She really creates a character. I've seen Donna Murphy in a million things, and I've never seen her like this, which again proves her versatility in uh, being able to um, create something completely different. From uh, This was my 13th Dolly, um, and uh, under those circumstances, I saw something that I had never seen before in any Dolly. She's quirky, she's funny, um, but she's definitely found a character to play and she's consistent with it and um, all the details are there um, when she puts her arm on a hip punctuating a line that type of thing so um, what was really nice too let me also point out is that um, as soon as she came on the audience went crazy for her so I don't oh, know if there's a Donna Murphy fan club um, or what but the audience went crazy for her and she waved off as if to say um, now come on I know you're here because it's Tuesday and this is the only time you can get tickets but we wouldn't stop applauding and she waved again saying oh come on stop it stop it i mean you know i i know who i am you know um i know i'm in second place here um but then she went on to show us that um um she's in first place um in all of our hearts uh because um uh, it was just a wondrous performance and the show's in very good shape by the way um they the cast really loves to play with her and and play they do so um i really highly recommend uh don murphy and hello dolly and indeed if the rumors are true that she's taking over in january she certainly earned the spot oh fantastic i hope that's true mm-hmm. me too uh, so, uh, well, let's go tangential for a second. Did either one of you see the, uh, Publix Hamlet? No. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. P- yeah, Peter, you did. So there was uh, news this week that the Publix Hamlet is cutting their matinee shows cause the four hour, uh, play is too much for the cast to do twice in a day. Um, what, what do you think about that? Well, I've never heard this happen to Hamlet before, and maybe it is a longer Hamlet than many, and that could very well be. I I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen the exact same Hamlet in any production I've seen, because people cut this, that, yeah. and the other thing. But um, all I can say is this is the first time I've ever heard this happen, and certainly Hamlet's been done a few times, you know, and um, I've, I've never really <laughs> heard of this going on, so um, I don't know why this cast uh, needs a break um, more than other casts have ever needed a break. Eight a week seemed to be fine for other Hamlet casts, so um, so who knows? Uh, to be fair, though, um, <laughs> there are more demands on this cast than are usually placed on um, 
actors who play in this play because uh, there's so much doubling and running around um, that maybe that's what's exhausting them. So I will give them the benefit of the doubt there. But I was uh, very surprised to see this be the decision made by the public theater. Especially since it's a hard ticket to get in a small theater and, uh, how, you know, I wonder if they're going to yeah, be Yeah, but to... somebody reported the other night that um, that he went, and there were about 25 empty seats. And um, so uh, maybe it isn't the big hit that we're uh, being led to believe it is. All I can say is that's uh, hearsay. Um, I can't say that I witnessed that. But, um, but one has to wonder. Huh. All right. So let's move on to the next show, which, uh, Peter, you got to see the New York premiere production of The Curvy Widow. Uh, so why don't you tell us about that? You had seen it down at the um, George Street Playhouse previously. Yeah, one of the things I objected to down at the George Street Playhouse is I didn't think that um, Bobby Goldman, who wrote the show, had very good blackout lines. And that's been smoothed over by not having blackouts. Um, so uh, it plays a little better here. And I went to a Wednesday matinee. And boy, I'm glad I did, because I can really recommend it to the Wednesday matinee audience. Those women who were in that audience had a hell of a time. And I have a feeling this is going to be a big hit with middle-aged or late middle-aged women, because boy, did they respond to every problem that Nancy Opal's character has. Now, the character actually is Bobby Goldman. Um, There's no um, masking that whatsoever. And Bobby Goldman is the widow of James Goldman, who wrote The Lion in Winter and Follies. And uh, her problem is now, does she move on and uh, find another man? Does she feel guilty for finding another man or looking for another man? So it's all about the Match.com thing and all that. So there's nothing new here. Um, There's no... um, amazing revelations that you haven't heard in any other story about a woman who's widowed. So um, it's pretty by the book, and it's um, often perfunctory. And yet, uh, for women who have had this experience, and plenty of them in the audience did, they were roaring with laughter and appreciating it so much. They also appreciated Nancy Opal, who has a real yeoman's job here. I, I She's barely, if ever, off the stage. And um, it's a titanically challenging part um, as she deals with her uh, various romances or non-romances or duds along the way. So I, 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 it's funny that it's in the same space that I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change was, and that ran, I think, 12 years. And while I may not predict 12 years for this, I think if the word can get out and counteract what I imagine is not going to be so hot reviews, I, I do believe that this is going to run for some time. Hmm. Well, that's uh, great. We were talking previously uh, before we started recording about uh, Nancy Opal deciding to go with the curvy widow versus uh, what uh, was uh, she was previously working on Prince of Broadway, which is just about it just went into previews, I guess, uh, on mm-hmm. Broadway. So uh, mm-hmm. what do you think? Did she make a good choice to stay with the curvy widow or uh, or is the jury still out? 
Well, um, I do believe that um, one has to consider the fact that an off-Broadway salary must be less than a Broadway salary. Um, she's the star of this show, so maybe her agent was able to negotiate and get her essentially what she would have got on Broadway. I have no idea about facts and figures here. But um, this is a better showcase for her, and maybe she feels, as I do, that this show has legs uh, and uh, can run a while, because after all, Prince of Broadway is a limited engagement on the other hand, one could argue the Prince of Broadway could extend, but it can't extend in the Friedman Theater. They have another show coming in. So uh, could it move? Maybe uh, is the booth booked? I forget. Anyway, um, so I do think that that might have been a consideration, the fact that uh, this has the chance of being a long-run show, while Prince of Broadway is less likely to be a long-run show. Hmm. All right. Uh, you also got a chance to see a parallelogram which uh, just opened up at second stage. So tell us about a parallelogram. Oh, this is the damnness thing. It really is. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's like being in a meadow and you see a butterfly and you want to catch it and you start grabbing for it and you can't catch it. Um, it this play goes all over the place, but it, it basically deals with B, B-E-E, uh, a, a young woman, wonderfully played by um, Celia Keenan-Bolger, wonderfully played. She's really one of the best we have at um, expressing exasperation while still being cute. And um, there's a lot of exasperation in this play because she's meeting um, her older self, not just once, not just twice, but three times. And that uh, part uh, is played magnificently by Anita Gillette, who probably has more lines in the play than anybody else. And uh, she has a lot to say about what B's future will be, because she is um, a septuagenarian, octogenarian version of B. So there's a lot of talk between them. And unfortunately for the other two men in the play, they cannot see her. They cannot hear her. B, uh, the older B only speaks to the younger B. Um, Now, one of the men is uh, her new lover, Jay, who indeed left his wife and children for her. And um, he's pretty frustrated by the fact that she seems to be talking to somebody and um, that person isn't there, at least the way he sees it. Also in the play is J.J. Those are initials. And that's the handyman who uh, mows their lawn, who will turn out to have a very important part in this play and a very important part in B's life. So unfortunately, what really happens here, there's a strange type of collateral damage with this play. Because as the play goes on, you feel more and more and more for Jay. Uh, that's the strange part of it, that you <laughs> you really think you should be on B's side when the play starts. Um, you expect because, after all, she's getting all the attention with two people, so she's the one you should concentrate on. But as time goes on, you have less and less and less sympathy for her and more and more and more sympathy for Jay, who's wonderfully played by Stephen Kunkin. So I, I don't know if the playwright saw this as, as a potential danger. Uh, the playwright, by the way, is Bruce Norris, who certainly has a, a Pulitzer Prize for Clybourne Park. But uh, uh, I think that, <laughs> that while there's a surprise ending in, in terms of who B is and all that kind of business, um, all I could do as the play was continuing was feeling, this poor guy, this poor guy, this poor guy. And I'm not sure that's what Bruce Norris wanted us to feel. So, and by the way, this is a play where you, just when you think you have it figured out, oh, 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 
I get the meaning. I oh, oh, oh wait a minute. No, this is not what the play is about. Oh, I see. It's about that. Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, uh, so it's a very confusing evening, but also a very unsatisfying one for the reasons I'm giving about uh, feeling for the wrong person. So Parallelogram is playing over second stage uh, right now. It uh, just opened, and uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes. There's a handful of things that happened this week that I wanted uh, Peter and uh, Jenna to weigh in on. If you have anything to say about these things, uh, let me know. First of all is the um, sad news that Sam Shepard has passed away. Uh, Peter, I know that you talked with Matt on Today on Broadway about it. Uh, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, for folks who don't listen to Today on Broadway, why don't you recount that great story of the interview? Well, uh, yeah, uh, Sam Shepard was certainly known as a tough playwright. Uh, he certainly didn't uh, glamorize life. I mean, I think the first time I ever saw a person urinate on stage was in um, Curse of the Starving Class, one of his plays. And um, so... Gritty, and also influenced a great number of playwrights um, uh, to be, you know, butch and macho and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I will never forget one time when I had to interview him. Uh, Fool for Love was being done at the McCarter Theater in uh, Princeton. So anyway, uh, we arranged time for an interview. But what I didn't anticipate was that he would call me from his car. And uh, <laughs> for all I know, it was uh, a 1979 uh, Chevy Impala. But you, when you think of Sam Shepard, you think of him driving down an open highway in Wyoming in a Corvette or a Jag. You know, so uh, so that image is in my head. But anyway, um, he was talking about something. I do not remember what he was talking about, but the funny thing was that um, it led me to say, well, does this happen at the beginning of your movie career or in the middle of your movie career? And it it certainly was uh, an inadvertent setup for the next line, which I didn't mean to be. Um, I was just trying to get a a sense of time, but he said, oh, do you mean the end of my movie career? And he laughed wildly. Um, He just loved the idea that um, that's where I was ostensibly heading. I didn't really really mean it that way, but he just enjoyed the fact, and I love the fact that he could laugh at himself and and be aware that uh, the movie career came, peaked, and went. So I really enjoyed that about Sam Shepard. And the type of guy I was talking to on the phone didn't seem to bear any relationship to the guy who wrote those tough, um, (laughs) life non-affirming plays that he would do. Yeah, so uh, that was uh, it was quite the news. Uh, really uh, unexpected. I I don't know if it was unexpected for the family, but it, I hadn't heard any rumors about it or anything. Neither uh, had I. And considering no, neither had I. Uh, the fact that he had ALS, you know, I mean, yeah. that's uh, that's something that doesn't um, just spring up overnight. He obviously had that for some time, I would think, and um, it was very much kept from the public, as far as I can see. Uh, Jenny, you too, huh? Yeah, I had not heard any rumors about this. I was thinking about going to see uh, Buried Child, what, a year ago? Was it 18 months? I'm trying to remember when it was running at, uh, uh, oh my gosh, which theater? Ah, (laughs) totally blanking. Signature. Signature. It was over Signature, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I was just reading over every eulogy, every elegy, uh, every obituary of uh, Sam Shepard. I was remembering uh, when was I at that theater and that experience of seeing that show and uh, what 
what seeing his work on stage meant to me. I have not seen an awful lot of his plays. Uh, Fool for Love was what two years ago, and I'm wondering, you know, did he know then, and yeah. what did yeah. his family know, and that it was all kept silent. And I'm, I'm kind of it fits in with his uh, his style, doesn't it? That he wouldn't want a big public yes, outpouring. I totally of, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, he would. Uh, You know, for such a tough playwright and for such, you should pardon the expression, uncommercial plays, it's really interesting how uh, many have been done in here, there, and everywhere. I actually saw True West done in Russian uh, in Alaska. Uh, and uh, with, um, of course, English subtitles. Um, I uh, maybe it was uh, maybe it was done for Trump. I don't know the uh, the Russian. I, I have no idea. But all things considered, um, seeing that up there really brought home to me that uh, he was not just a playwright that was appreciated as much as he was appreciated by critics anyway um, in America um, because here who was a Russian company coming over. Um, and um, showing it in Alaska. So uh, that definitely extended uh, the reach of what I thought Sam Shepard would uh, reach because, um, you know, Russian? Wow, I'm impressed. Peter, do you have a grasp of if Sam Shepard was as popular on the West End as he was here on Broadway? No, I don't. I have no idea how he fared in London. Um, I don't recall even hearing of, I'm sure there were plenty of productions over there, but I can't recall hearing of any. And uh, maybe that's because um, just as he wasn't a Broadway playwright, yeah. even though they dimmed the lights for him, um, maybe uh, certainly in the uh, the fringe areas of uh, London, his plays were done uh, quite a bit. But um, I have no knowledge of, uh, I, I can't say, oh, yeah, 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 that time when he was at the Aldwych with whatever. You know, I, yeah. I just don't remember any uh, mainstream West End productions. All right. So uh, the other thing, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about this week is that uh, Little Shop of Horrors looks like it's going to get a uh, film remake with Josh Gad and Rebel Wilson. Uh, do you guys have any feelings either way uh, about a remake of Little Shop as a movie? Jenna. Don't gild the lily. I mean, no, that's... <laughs> That's the wrong phrase. I mean, uh, again, why? Why? I don't understand why we need remakes of everything. I really wish they would take, you know, find another show that hasn't had a movie adaptation yet. Uh, I love Little Shop as much as the next person. Uh, I love the movie. I'm so glad Ellen Green's performance was preserved for the ages. Uh, it's a fun film. I don't see why it needs to be redone. That said. Uh, I like the cast. I like Josh Gad very much. I like Rebel Wilson very much. They're both very talented performers. Uh, it could be interesting to see what they would do with the characters. I would not have uh, imagined Rebel Wilson for the role of uh, of Audrey. I would not have pictured her having that vulnerability. I can't picture anyone uh, beating down Rebel Wilson the way Audrey gets beaten down in this play. Uh, but she is a talented actress. She could she could make us believe that. So uh, if this is the show that they feel will bring in audiences in a better musical that's been done before than you know, no movie musicals at all, but we've already got a really good movie adaptation of this, uh, of this great show. Why do we need a new one? There are so many other shows that have not had a film adaptation, and I really would love to see those put on screen. Hmm. Uh, Peter, any thoughts on this? 
I pretty much agree. Um, it, it's it's hard to believe that um, there was just a 15-year span between Showboat being filmed in 1936 and Showboat being filmed in 1951. There was a Showboat um, in, I think, 30 as well. However, the difference there is the one in 30, um, um, I think, uh, no, I guess it was earlier because it, it didn't have um, sound. Okay, so in 36 you remake it because now you have sound and in 51 you remake it because now you movies are more routinely in color than they were back in the 30s so there's a reason why showboat was remade but you know a remake today isn't really needed um uh, remotely as much because of course all of us on our shelves have little shop of horrors that movie with rick moranis and ellen green so um it's it's not as uh, important to have a remake of this property since as jenna says this is a perfectly fine movie um, it did everything it wanted to do. Um, I, well, I guess it did. I mean, you, everybody knows about that famous different ending um, that um, does turn up on, I think, some DVDs, but not all. Uh, but anyway, you know, <laughs> yeah, I agree. There are so many other properties. Um, if there were no such thing as DVDs, if this movie were not something we could see any night of the week, um, I guess I could see a remake uh, because the other movie would have disappeared just as the 36 Showboat disappeared. <laughs> Uh, as time went on. Um, and by the way, 51, I mean, TV is just starting. And uh, there's, I, I'll bet that by that point, that 36 showboat didn't show up on TV yet. So um, there's more of a reason for remakes back then, but not now. Hmm. All right. Um, uh, we also got the news that Billy Porter and Stark Sands are going to return to Kinky Boots, which is uh, exciting for folks that had missed them the first time around. Uh, and uh, the London uh, cast of Harry Potter is going to transfer to Broadway. Uh, oh, yes. How they, how they worked out the uh, the logistics and union, union contracts of those things, <laughs> because while they did announce the names of the London cast, uh, I didn't see them as household names or big stars that probably had to have come here, so they might have... It seems like they, they must have had some sort of massive trade on uh, on roles in London played by Americans and roles in American played by uh, folks from the UK. So, uh, That's a good point, James, about the massive uh, number coming over in the trade because it reminds me in the old days of baseball when there used to be these massive trades, seven yeah. players for seven uh -huh. players as opposed yeah. to one player for one player. <laughs> And uh, I never thought of it quite that way. But, um, yeah, I, I have to say the names didn't mean anything to me of the people coming over. But, of course, um, they've certainly done the job over there. Um, of course, Harry Potter itself had something to do with that. But uh, but <laughs> um, I, I don't think these names are going to sell the show. Uh, I think we all know that. But um, good. You know, if, if, um, if they're good in their roles, we'll certainly be interested in seeing them. And uh, if, <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens with this show, uh, if indeed it really turns out to be uh, the sensation it's been in London. I suspect it will, um, but um, strange things do happen. I mean, at this time last year, we were talking about Wapate being the show that was going to uh, yeah. sweep the Tonys and, you know, sell out like crazy, and we didn't even know the words come from away um, as the mm. title. So, you know, you, one, one just never knows what's going to happen, but it's going to be very hard to bet against the Harry Potter success. And boy, did you hear about how hard it is to get tickets? I don't mean in the conventional sense. I mean, like you have to register. Do you, do you know about all yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the Ambassador Theater Group, you know, trying to 
once again change the uh, way in which things are have been done up until this point on Broadway. I, I wonder if they're going to make the reviewers sweat this one out as well. It seems as though that when they have a very popular show, the Ambassador Theater Group uh, is not really interested in inviting reviewers and unless they mm-hmm. have a show that may not be selling tickets. So uh, we'll have to see if they treat this one differently as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's a very good point. And let us know ahead of time, because if they're not going to invite us, let us know. We'll buy tickets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Seriously. Uh, and uh, <sighs> once in this island announced their casting as well. This, these are the dog days of summer when they're throwing out all this information. And they tried to slip this one as well in as well that uh, uh, Peter had uh, alluded to before. Bette Midler is going to be wrapping up her run in Dolly in January. And... Uh, we have uh, yet to hear what the rumors are post bet. So, uh, you know, leaving Donna in that role, certainly she's getting good word of mouth from everybody. I haven't seen any, actually any reviews or so about Donna, but the, the word of mouth of my friends in the theater community are, are, is really good, as, Pe- as Peter had um, reviewed just a few minutes ago. What's so interesting to me is that um, on so many of the chat boards, people are saying, wouldn't so-and-so be wonderful as Dolly? Which reminds us that this is a role that can be played by so many actresses, and um, certainly, um, you should pardon the expression, of a certain age. And um, that's significant, to have a, a nice role like this available to uh, stars. Back in um, when the original run of Dolly happened, uh, old-timers like Betty Grable and Martha Ray uh, named that may not mean much to uh, today's theater goers, but uh, certainly meant something to theater goers back then because those uh, ladies had had movie careers, especially Grable. So um, it's the type of role that really can attract so many people to play it. And um, I hope Donna gets the part, but I won't be surprised if a, a, a more recognizable name for the public um, is going to take over the role uh, because it, it's just that type of show that there are so many people who could play it. You know, we hear rumors of every Thing from Queen Latifah to Goldie Hawn uh, coming in and doing it. Some people want Anne Margaret to do it. Uh, <laughs> I've heard all sorts of names. And um, uh, what I hope more than anything else is that Dolly stays around. That's what I really want to have happen. Um, uh, as long as the person who's playing the part is good, uh, I want it to happen um, because uh, people should see a Golden Age show done with the loving care and um, opulence that this show gives. Absolutely. I was just going to jump on to what uh, what Peter said. Isn't it wonderful that, you know, after centuries of theater aficionados discussing who played the best Juliet, who was the best Portia, who was the best Hamlet, with all this classical theater that they could debate, that today we're arguing, well, really, I preferred Patti Lapone's Rose to... Uh, to sure. Tyne Daly's and that now yeah, we can yeah. debate who was the best uh, who was the best Dolly and that we hold these roles in the same esteem that the classics have always been held and I think it's just lovely that a 50 year old musical can be spoken of with the same reverence and that it's earned that reverence and it's mm-hmm. it's very exciting that we have that people are debating well really I think this person would be better because I saw her play and I know that she could do I think that's wonderful, and I'm very glad that we're treating these roles with the respect they've earned. And, you know, um, going back to uh, the, another show from that same year uh, originally, 
who would have expected that Mimi Hines would have stayed in Funny Girl longer than Barbara Streisand uh, because people would have expected Mimi Hines to run three weeks uh, originally because, after all, um, she's not Barbara Streisand, and that was uh, the iconic uh, performer to play it, uh, which proves, again, that uh, if it's a good show uh, with a good score, uh, it can last. And, of course, um, while I did not see Mimi Hines, I've never known any human being who did see Mimi Hines, who didn't think she was extraordinary. And I would say at least 30% of the people I've talked to who saw her and Streisand thought that she was better than Streisand. So, um, so yeah, let's keep these um, wonderful vehicles around uh, and have some old stars drive them for some time, because these shows can bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, I... Um... I'm a little bit jaded, and one of my favorite things about social media is the snark side of it. And I saw a lot of snarky replacements for uh, for Bette Midler, uh, starting out with uh, uh, maybe they could replace um, Bette and and Donna at the same time with uh, Mandy Patinkin and Okarike and Ottawa. Uh, I also saw another one where they were saying uh, Reince Priebus is going into it, along with Sean Spicer and Scaramucci. Uh-huh. Uh, so, Damn it, you uh, took my joke. <laughs> I, gave, I gave you a few times to throw it in there. It didn't Sorry. seem like you were going to, so I had to take it. <laughs> so uh, I'll, make sir- a, I'll make a prediction that every Broadway show this season, and perhaps every off-Broadway show this season, too, will run longer than Scaramucci. <laughs> <laughs> We're holding you to that. <laughs> I, I think that um, given the high competitive nature of getting a Broadway theater these days, that I, I think it's likely that most shows are going to have uh, longer runs than Scaramucci. Um, you know, just yes, too indeed. hard to yeah. get, just too hard to get to opening night to not run for more than ten days. So mm. and 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 actually, officially, he actually hadn't even started his job. He right, I know. He yeah, was yeah. he closed he in actually, previews. He yeah. closed exactly. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, what can you do? Um, yeah. I, well, that of course um, it brings us to um, Natasha Pierre. You know, talking yeah. about um, per- perhaps uh, theater will be available, and I imagine that Mean Girls, which is starting uh, in, yeah, at the National Theater, this. Uh, this autumn is um, very interested in the Imperial. So we'll see what happens there. All right. Um, uh, uh, do you guys know Jesse Oxfeld? He's a, a writer, a theater writer and reviewer. He's worked at the observer. He's kind of a pundit on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. He uh, posted this thing the other day that I wanted to read to you and get your take on it. He said, mm-hmm. okay, the 800-odd playbills may not spark joy, but what kind of monster throws out playbills? Question mark. And so I thought to myself, I've been to Peter Felicia's place, oh, and I don't, I don't see thousands of playbills everywhere, but I know that you have them. Yeah, in my cabinets, where indeed um, there should be crockery and plates and all that other kind of stuff that people have in their homes. Um, no, my cabinets are filled with uh, playbills ranging from Abe Lincoln in Illinois to the Zulu and the Zeta. So uh, there are thousands of them here, and um, I've often thought about pulling out the ad inserts so I'd have more space, but I do feel like that's a type of a violation. So they're all the way uh, they are supposed to be. So, uh, yeah. 
and <laughs> I I have thought about pruning them um, with um, you know like workshops and things like that, but I just can't bear to do it. So um, yeah, I I would say there's at least. 5,000 to 7,000 here, so oh my what can goodness. you do? Wow. It's true. What kind of monster throws out playbills? <laughs> uh, uh, I'll I, tell you a fun story about that. Years yeah. ago, I wound up walking up 56th Street next to David Strathern, and I began talking with him about the autographs I had on the playbill I was carrying. I was I used to stage door all the time, and he laughed and said, oh, I never keep the playbills of the shows that I'm in. And we wound up having a long conversation about this, what souvenirs actors keep from their shows. And he just said, I, I have my memories from the show. I don't need to keep the playbills. I never keep them. And I thought that was just fascinating because I had stacks and stacks like like Peter or uh, alphabet, alphabetically arranged. And even Strathern does not, apparently. Well, for me, uh, it's not just sentiment, um, and it's not just, oh, this will fetch me a few bucks on eBay someday. For me, it's really very valuable to look at early playbills of people who turned out to be stars because their bios reveal such interesting information that they don't have when they become stars. For example, um, I have a playbill of Bernadette Peters. I don't remember what the show it was, but when she was just starting out, and she pointed out that she was doing a production of Gypsy in which she was playing Dainty June. However, the, um, one of the Hollywood blondes in the second act was sick, and she had to go on as a Hollywood blonde. And what makes that interesting, of course, is wouldn't Rose cast somebody who looked like D- Dainty June? So there's all, you know, again, uh, you get a, a bio of Bernadette Peters today, you ain't going to see that story. So, um, so they're very valuable for me uh, because sometimes I need information, especially when I'm interviewing people and going and saying, gee, remember the time when you blah, 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 you know, and they say, oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so they do serve a purpose for me, and that's why I don't throw them out too. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's wrap up for the morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Video. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone or your Android device. Um, iHeartRadio plays us. Google Play plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Uh, all sorts of uh, place where you can get your finer podcasts. Broadway World Radio streams us at Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m., Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Jennifer, Peter, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, tell us about the answer to last week's trivia. Well... Last week's trivia question really was uh, virtually impossible, and so I'm not surprised nobody <laughs> got it. Um, and I just stumbled on this information, and that's why I asked it. Okay, the question was, Guys and Dolls was the first musical to open in the 50s to win a Best Musical Tony. But another 1950s Tony-winning musical actually had characters known as Guys and Dolls. Which one was it? Okay, now believe me. If I hadn't been checking the exact title of a song in Damn Yankees on IBDB, <laughs> I would have never noticed that Two Lost Souls is attributed to Lola, Joe Hardy, 
and guys and dolls. So what can I tell you? Um, <laughs> who knew? I wouldn't have had, you know, but so, so I'm not surprised. And I even apologize for being so ar- arcane to think that um, readers would actually say, okay, let me look at every um, Tony winning musical from the fifties and go on IBDB and look at every category. Uh, that's a tall order. So uh, I'm not saying that this week's trivia question is any easier, but uh, we'll see what happens. All right. <clears throat> it's, so what was the first Oscar winning movie to mention another Oscar-winning movie. All right, and what does this have to do with Broadway, you ask? Okay, I'll grant you that. No, both of these movies were made into musicals that were Tony-nominated for Best Musical but lost. The more recent musical retained its movie title, what a surprise, while the earlier one did not. It changed it. What are the two films and the musicals that they spawned? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much, thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. A firestorm consuming Indianapolis, igniting everything. The Holiday Inn The hot dog stands and dodges Gas stations, motor lodges The day that couldn't be Has finally been A firestorm consuming It's his turn. Stop the bus. Please stop the bus. Stop the bus. Please stop the bus. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. bus.